for Dynamic Deputies. Hello and welcome to the Dynamic Deputies podcast, run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. What a wonderful start we've had to 2022, Steve. Yes, Russell. We were privileged to kick off the year with John Walker talking about etymology and morphology. If you've not heard that one yet, do give it a listen as you're guaranteed to learn something new. And it connects really well to his previous podcast on phonics. And Russell, today's episode is just the two of us. And we'll be looking at some teaching strategies that listeners can apply in their classrooms each and every day. That's right, Steve. We're looking at scaffolding today. And to give some context to this episode, it links really nicely to a very popular episode we recorded last year with Mary Myatt called The Stuff That Matters. In that episode, and I quote, Mary said, differentiation as an idea in principle is a good one in that we make the curriculum accessible insofar as as possible for every child in the classroom. What it got devolved into was I've got to produce different work for different groups of children. Now, Mary went on to talk about the power of scaffolding as our main form of differentiation, didn't she, Steve? She did indeed. And Mary talked about the importance of not rationing rich, interesting work, but making sure that we support all learners to access interesting curriculum material. Now, Mary honed in on talk as her favourite scaffolding technique. But in today's episode, we thought we'd look more at the strategies we can use for scaffolding. I should say at this point, Russell, and yes, shameless plug alert, (laughs) that all of this links very nicely to one of the chapters in our upcoming book. It does indeed, Steve. Our regular listeners will know that our debut book is due out in April. Its name is Talking Teaching with the Dynamic Deputies, Inspiring CPD for Every Teacher. And I believe, Steve, it is available for pre-order on Amazon and other good websites now. The interview we've just been referring to there with Mary was the inspiration for a chapter in that book about differentiation. And within that, we make some further suggestions about how you can scaffold in lessons. So we're going to be talking about a bunch of these ideas we mentioned in the book today, Steve. Absolutely, Russell, that's perfect. So we have eight ideas to explore, but let's start with an overview of what we mean by scaffolding and why it's preferable to the kind of differentiation Mary Might was criticising. How would you describe scaffolding, Russell? I would say in a nutshell, Steve, scaffolding is about the techniques that we use or employ in our classroom to bridge children between what they can do already and the new thing that we need them to be able to do or understand. The name scaffolding itself is kind of a hint, Steve, that it's a very temporary thing. So if what I give children to support them cannot be removed or they become dependent on it in order to succeed, then it's not really a scaffold. It's kind of overrating them. Mm. So a scaffold needs to give children just enough of what they need right now in order to absorb, wrestle with, or use the new content I'm trying to teach. Yeah. So one thing that might seem counterintuitive about scaffolds is that they're meant to make children more independent, even though they're a form of support. But I guess that's why they need to be temporary. Because I remember when we spoke to Jane Clapp on the podcast, and she used to be a physio, Mm. and she talked about how we should gradually build a patient's confidence up through support and then slowly remove the aids as they become more confident. Yeah, I really like that analogy, Steve. And I said in that podcast, my own mum was a physio Mm. and I used to really think about how she would do that with her patients. She would give them what they needed at that time to build them up. But within that kind of zone of challenge, you know, they were always slightly out of their comfort zone. And I tell people about a couple of years ago when I dislocated my shoulder, I remember going to see the physio and the doctor and they were asking me to just do a little bit more than I thought I could before. But my scaffold might have been some resistant bands or something I needed at that stage to get me to that next 
fit. So it's about building that confidence and that knowledge that we need at the time in order to get children uh, to a point where they can do more by themselves. So yes, it does seem counterintuitive, but remember what I'd say to our listeners is that children do not become independent because we leave them to struggle. Much in the same way, Steve, that when I was learning to drive, if you'd stuck me in a car uh, on my own and said, off you go, I wouldn't have necessarily coped very well. So I needed some direct instruction. I needed some modeling. I needed the right level of support and guidance in order to manage on my own eventually. Absolutely. That's a great analogy. So shall we explore all our eight techniques then, Russell? Yeah, let's do it. Excellent. Okay. So and we should say at the start, Russell, that these aren't complicated strategies. Mm. They're simple things we all probably do, yeah. but we don't always realise that they are forms of scaffolding. So we should also say that we've been particularly inspired by people like Tom Sheridan, yeah. Mary Meyer and Ashley Booth, as they come up with some amazing ideas. Yeah, they do indeed, Steve. They've all written some brilliant blogs and written extensively about this kind of thing. So there have been some real inspiration with these ideas. So, Steve, let's start. Number one is the idea of breaking a lesson into smaller chunks. Now, I was thinking about this earlier and thinking this seems like such an obvious thing, certainly for the teachers in my school, or people that have just started their career in my school in the last couple of years. But thinking back to when we taught together, we weren't really taught to do lessons as kind of mini chunks where I think a lot of people do that now. What would a typical lesson have looked like for you at the start of your career? It was probably that three part idea. Absolutely. It was the three part idea. And I think that's the guidance you got 10, 12 years ago. It was have a startup, do your input. Then children go away and do an activity and then we get them all back together for a plenary. And that simplicity, whilst it was a structure to help someone like me who was an NQT, Mm. didn't always hammer home what we wanted to do in a lesson. So we were talking just before we hit record, weren't we, about this? And we were saying that one of the limitations of that kind of structure that you talked about, yeah, it seems simple and seems nice to grasp as an NQT or as an ECT now. But Mm. if I was then just set off after an input, maybe I delivered a really good, the teacher delivered a really good input. I was set off. The rest of the lesson was kind of independent working. I know that in in my experience as a teacher working under that model, Steve, I sometimes didn't realise there were issues until I sat down with my very big pile of books to mark. I don't know about you. (laughs) That is it. And there's nothing more demoralising as a teacher when you open your books at 3.30 and everyone's gone home and 20 or so out of the 30 children have got the same misconception. Mm. And then you're spending such a long time kind of correcting that in their book because you don't want to just leave it there when really that could all be solved if the lesson was broken down into smaller chunks before you set the independent task. Yeah, that's right. Because those small chunks would have given you opportunities throughout the lesson to check for understanding, to address the issues. And we'll talk about check for understanding in a bit because that's another scaffolding technique. But kind of gauge the temperature of how children are getting on at various points but also give them manageable chunks of information and i'm thinking particularly in maths mm. where often we're introducing three four quite fundamental ideas particularly if we're teaching maybe a new calculation strategy being able to teach one small part practice that apply that check for understanding before we introduce the next bit it's pretty key absolutely and you're right it applies brilliantly to mathematics because that is a process in itself. And if we can explain the process clearly in manageable chunks, explain how we can use support within that process, children have a much better go at doing it. 
Awesome. So there's our first scaffolding technique, breaking your lessons into smaller sort of mini, almost mini lessons, really. And that can work right across the curriculum. Mm -hmm. I've seen people do that in different subjects now in my school. We started with maths with that approach. Uh, lots of my turn, your turn, and it supports some of the other techniques we're about to talk about as well. So I'm going to go on to one of those now, Steve. Yeah, Russ, if I could just add art as a curriculum subject, it's a fantastic one to break into mini lessons and just develop the confidence of children because some children will love art and flourish, but some of them will be really resistant to putting pencil on paper or whatever technique they're doing. So breaking it down to tiny mini lessons, you really see the fluidity flow through when the confidence is coming from my turn, your turn and having a go. I'm so pleased you mentioned art, Steve, because I can think of a lad we had in year six a couple of years ago and art was a real trigger. So with his behaviour, he'd often get sent out in art lessons. And we realised when we started bringing in this way of teaching our lessons and a tighter curriculum that he started to be successful in that lesson because we were giving him what he needed to be successful and you know something like art quite often children develop that idea don't they by year five or six I can't do this you know I'm rubbish at this there's, there's a good artist in the room and I'm not that one where actually by breaking it up and saying here's the kind of structure of the picture first I'm going to support you with with the outline or this is the first step and then gradually building it up and a kid's like wow I've actually drawn something that looks good because I've had those small steps that I've needed yeah. that is amazing what a great example yeah I love that Steve all right so that does link really nicely actually to the next point so number two our, our next strategy for scaffolding is modeling and if you're talking about a lesson like the one you just gave what a great example where we've got art and we're breaking it up maybe we're trying to produce a complex picture and I'm breaking that into mini chunks I'm going to need to model within that. And, you know, it seems like such an obvious part of teaching, but I don't know if you can remember, Steve, I certainly can times where my lesson's just fallen flat on its face. And I've realized it's because I haven't shown the children what success looks like. I haven't modeled what success looks like. I haven't shown them my thinking processes. What comes to mind for you? Uh, any English lesson where we have to develop a paragraph of writing, a mm. really chunky, like a setting description I can remember two occasions with this. One where I've, I've literally listed all the ingredients I want to see in a setting description. Yeah. I think I've given them the visual. I've given them the picture of what we could be describing. I've played sounds within the classroom to develop that. But I've never actually shown them what a setting description looks like. <laughs> yeah. And particularly when you've got the show me, don't tell me. Mm. And then they end up, you get children writing, the sky is... The, the river is, uh, mm. oh, that's not what I wanted. I wanted this um, beautiful piece of writing. So yeah. it really haunted me because I thought, oh, how, hang on. I'm expecting these children to A, learn the success criteria for a set inscription and B, just be able to write it. That doesn't happen. You can't do that in an hour's lesson or whether you've built up across a week. So I really learned to step back, think about the modelling process and literally take my mind and put it onto a flip chart on a whiteboard and think, this is what's going through my thought process in terms of this is how I want to structure my writing, this is what I want to include. And it can look really messy until we then can pull it all together and I can show how my thoughts and my, my bullet points as such develop into a piece of cherished writing that I could be proud of. I love that, Steve. I'm going to plug the walkthroughs by Tom Sherrington and Oliver Caviglioli who we've had on the podcast before because they do a lovely walkthrough on scaffolding through modeling 
And they use that lovely phrase you've just used there, messy, messy thinking, organize your messy thinking. Because so often with so many aspects of learning, particularly writing, I've got all these ideas buzzing around in my head, how that gets from my messy thinking onto the page into an organized way. There's a process there. And good authors do that with loads of notes and bullet points and all sorts. And actually children are just expected to pick that up and just know how to do that. You're right. It's mad when we just expect them to do that and then wonder why they're not successful. And I think what people have to realize coming back to this thing about independence, they're not going to get to a point where they can just do that on their own unless they've seen that modeled loads of times. And that can feel like I'm over aiding. And I don't know about you, Steve, but I worried about doing things like that in writing because we were always told, oh, work needs to be independent for assessment and so on. And we'd be so panicked about assessment that we would we'd never give them what they needed in the first place so that I could then withdraw and let them have a go on their own. Yeah. One thing my class were amazing at was starting to magpie ideas, not just from me, but from peers. And then you do get that concern of, wow, are they just magpieing it all and just chucking it into a page? Yeah. But at the same time, we've got to give them the ingredients. We've got to give them the examples that they need to see from a modeling process to know how to apply it in their own context. And we can tell if someone's just magpied everything over a week, it's not going to be a brilliant piece of writing, even though it has good qualities to it. So they have to put their own flair onto that. But the only reason and the ability of doing that is by having some live modelling in the classroom. And I say live modelling because I've seen before that sometimes it can be a real temptation to have a pre-prepared PowerPoint, for example, Mm. with modelled examples already there. And yes, that can be okay because there's a security Mm. to having a modelled example there. And there are great resource websites that provide brilliant models. But nothing can also beat the teacher live modelling with the children and even engaging them in that process. And Steve, what people don't realise is that you could have pre-prepared your your live modelled example. You don't (laughs) have to actually make it up on the spot. Have a pre-prepared one that you're going to make it look like you're you're making up as you're going along in front of the children. If, if English isn't your bag, it's, it's not rocket science. That can work really well. And you might find you tweak your original example you'd scribble down for yourself as you're doing it live with the children, particularly if you're including them a bit in that. One little hack, Steve, around the idea of them copying too much or magpieing too much from you that I really like, and this again is in the walkthroughs, is the idea of having more than one plausible option. Mm. So with writing, clearly there's more than one great paragraph for a setting description so actually it might be showing two opening sentences to your setting description letting them see both and go actually both of these are great aren't they but i've used this technique in this one i've used this in this one and it just opens it up for children makes them think oh okay there's not just one right way of doing it if mine looks a bit different that's okay so i don't have to stick too rigidly to mr east first example you know it's that kind of thing so Yeah. yeah really nice nice tips with modeling there and live modeling my next one steve number three on my list of scaffolding techniques that really help children is pre-teaching so i don't know what pre-teaching means to you but it's this idea of giving children some children or the children that need it might be all children access to some of the content you're going to teach either later that day or the next day and i think steve it's been used a lot in maths by people for various reasons so anticipating the concepts they might struggle with or the vocabulary they might find hard and it's a meant to replace this idea of intervention or reactive teaching afterwards where i have to pick up on messy stuff it's kind of getting in there early have you ever tried it or seen it work well anywhere i have and i can really reminisce about two years ago my year six class i had a a beautiful group of about 
six, seven children who were able mathematicians. They weren't your strongest. They weren't your greatest depth at the time, but no way were they nearly the lower achievers. They were a decent bunch. But what their, their issue within, I say issue, it's not an issue, but within the maths lesson, they would be slower in processing what they needed to do. So what became apparent was that we needed to give them a bit of pre-teaching mm. prior to what we were learning. And by doing that, enable me to spend some real quality time with the children to give them some quality first teaching before the lesson. And it enabled them to go in with belief and some confidence that, ah, I don't have every answer right now, but I'm aware of what we're doing. I know the structure. I know what I could learn here. And sometimes that little bit of self-esteem being raised goes a long way with pre-teaching. I don't know about you, how you feel about pre-teaching, Russ. Massive. Do you know, I went on a course years ago and apologies because I can't remember who I need to credit this to, but I think there'd been some research done locally to where I am, actually. I think it was it was a local thing. And a child as part of this research into pre-teach was talking about the benefits for them in their confidence. And the way they described it is this, and it's really stuck with me. They said, before... It was like I was part of a race at the start of every lesson, but I didn't even hear the whistle to say go, where now I hear the whistle. And I think what that child was describing so beautifully is this idea that pre-teach has me ready at the go line with everybody else. And I just love that. I mean, that's beautiful. Mm, a philosophical masterpiece. I mean, huh? incredible. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm there at, the, at that start line with everybody else and I'm not already behind. I've heard that yeah. whistle. I'm ready mm. to go. So pre-teaching, I know something that gets in the way of it, it happening is practicalities for teachers and where do I fit this in? So I appreciate that's really difficult. But what I would also throw out there is, okay, in your class, in the afternoon, does the TA end up having to take out a group of kids for 40 minutes because they didn't get the maths this morning? A pre-teach, if that avoided that for 10 minutes with your TA first thing in the morning, would that have been worth having your TA back in your history lesson that afternoon and those kids not going out? So it's thinking about being proactive and preventing a problem. Or even, you know, if you're not fortunate enough to have a TA in your class, is it five minutes at the start of the day where you do, uh, some of our teachers have called it a sneak peek. Nice. A sneak peek at my slides for maths, all right? I'm going to be showing these in about 15 minutes, but I'm just going to talk you through two or three of them. Well, it's lovely because like you described with the confidence, once they're getting going on the input, those kids' hands are shooting up because they already know that we're talking about arrays in multiplication or something today. So I think a sneak peek is really nice. The other time we're playing with it at the moment in our school, Steve, just to, with a new initiative we've got, we've brought in a new form of really explicit reading instruction time inspired by Christopher Such's book. And we recognise that we want all children in the class in that session accessing the age-appropriate text. But clearly we've got children who aren't attaining at an age-appropriate level for reading right now. They might struggle to access those texts or to be involved heavily in the reading fluency. So a pre-teach for them might be the TA showing them that text first thing in the morning and just reading it through with them two minutes. So one, they're familiar with it. They know the meaning of a couple of the key words and perhaps they can read some of the words, even if their partner's going to end up doing most of the reading out loud. Mm -hmm. So it's just simple things like that. You think it doesn't have to be complicated. Ops for pre-teach over an intervention is a great scaffold for uh, effective learning. And do you know what I found, Russ, mm. is that when you go out of a pre-teach group, no matter who they are, and it can be for the five or ten minutes, it makes that child or children feel so special. Of course it does. That they think, I've, I've got a bit of an edge here. I, yeah. I know about what's coming up next. And 
that can go a long way. That yeah. gives them the confidence to want to succeed in the lesson that's coming up. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't have to be complicated. No. A quick chat through the content, a sneak peek, look at some keywords, win-win. Uh, Steve, let's go on to number four. So my fourth idea is a step-by-step instructional guide that we can give to children and that can look really different depending on the context of the lesson but I think you wanted to talk about structure strips which I always find hard to say in English which we can use as a kind of guide for a piece of writing what's that look like for you and what are they for anyone that doesn't know yes so we introduced structure strips a couple of years ago now because um, you can always have some children who just seem to lose their way within the writing. Particularly, we developed what we call hot writes. So by the end of the topic, they'll do a cold write at the beginning. They learn more about the topic and then they do a hot write. And we just had some children that weren't advancing enough in the hot write from what they'd learned over the last couple of weeks, for example. So a structure strip is a piece of paper that you print out literally will fit in the margin so it's long but it's narrow Mm -hmm. and that structure strip will have the structure of whatever genre of writing you're doing for example so i can think back to newspaper reports or non-chronological reports that are very structured but it can refer to narrative as well so it's not just for non-fiction writers it's for fiction too and within this column that goes in the margin we have a simple step-by-step structure to what they need to be writing. And sometimes it can literally be subtitle Mm. or it could be a question to the child as well. It's like a trigger. Um, It it helps keep them on track with the structure. And what we did was we allowed this structure strip to go in. And then over time, you can pull back for children that maybe don't need it. But even for your most higher-achieving children, we found that just having this security from time to time of the structure strip enabled them to flourish in their writing because we could then look at the sentence composition, the vocabulary it's used in there, the punctuation, all the elements that we would want to see in a greater depth child is still there and they're easier for the child to, to demonstrate because they have a security of the structure strip. And they go for all children in a class. It doesn't matter what level they're at. If they had it in their book for the day they had to do a hot write, hot writes can sometimes be intimidating children at the best of times. So having this security blanket there and a reference point made the writing process easier for them whilst they're still independently demonstrating what they can do. Nice. That's a really great description, Steve. So two points to pick up on. One, what I'm hearing there is that actually using a structure strip in writing also didn't prevent you from being able to use some of those pieces as really good assessment pieces, because Mm, you could say, all right, I'm not assessing their structure or their composition in this particular piece, but I can assess their use of punctuation, what vocabulary they've chosen and so on. And the other thing I'd say is the idea of a structure strip, once they've got very used to it, can one be used across the whole curriculum? So we can have a structure strip for an end of unit piece of work about what I've learned about the Tudors. Mm. I could have it for any piece of writing about anything, can't I, as a prompt. What I was also going to say with them is that once children are familiar with them, We can do things like give children partially completed structure strips because remember scaffolds, we need to wean them off them eventually or not make them too reliant on them. So it might be that they're used to a structure strip. I find that so hard to say. (laughs) Um, So I can put in maybe uh, I've got eight gaps in my structure strip and I'm going to give them the first three prompts, but they're going to co 
produce the final five. So I can slowly wean them off that structure strip. And that's something we spoke about in our school is we've got to be a bit careful with all these wonderful scaffolds. They don't get so reliant and used to them. They're about a, a temporary bridge mm. through to new knowledge. And maybe they need a heavily scaffolded structure strip the first two, three, four, five times, but slowly I need to wean them off. And I've seen some of my teachers actually giving them completely blank ones once they've got used to it. This is how you're going to structure your planning today. Have a think about what are the main ingredients you want to include. So it's great. Once they're familiar with that, it's a new resource and a tool they can use in their learning. So yeah, love it. And it might not be a structure strip, but any tool like that where we're giving a kind of a, a cue as to the steps they're going to take can be really helpful. Exactly. All right. So let's go to the number five, Steve. And this seems like a funny one because it's not really an activity or anything, but I think it's really, really important. And it's this idea of explicitly linking what we're learning today to prior learning. So making it really obvious that the new content you're learning today has something to do with what we learned in the last lesson in this unit whether that be last week or yesterday, and making that really clear. What we're doing there is we're activating that prior learning. And when we're thinking about schema development in the child's brain, we're helping them to make a connection between different parts of their knowledge and not just teaching lots of isolated facts. So I don't know if you've seen any examples of this yourself or any colleagues where they've really activated that prior learning and got children to make those links, Steve. Absolutely. And do you know what I always think with prior learning is that we've introduced a new curriculum where we are so caught with connectedness between our curriculum and looking at links that we can make. Now, whether it's short-term, medium or long-term, somewhere in our, our long-term plan, for example, or even a weekly plan, there's this idea of developing what we've learned to help work out what we don't. And we're going on this journey across a week, a month, I don't know. Now, a massive shout out will go to my former year six colleagues because my ECT um, that was job sharing with me, she actually brought in a subtle tweak to our process of um, learning challenges when she really focused on a simple question of what prior learning has made today easier as such mm. because... Their children are then just look at, reflecting back. They don't need to write it down. They just need to think about what prior learning have we explicitly been taught? And, ah, by learning this, I now know that. Right. Or I'm going to learn this. And it works really well with geography subjects and history when you can build upon previous knowledge from the previous year, previous years, or even the previous lesson. Yeah. It's learning about what that prior learning has enabled you to learn today and will enable you to learn tomorrow. And just having this step stone of, ah, okay, I, I can recap that I learned this mm. and therefore it's helping me know what I'm going to do today or what skill I'm going to be developing by learning what I was taught in the previous lesson. I love that. That's really, really clear, Steve. I think as teachers, because we're so surrounded by curriculum maps and topics and that's the way we think and we spend our weekends planning, we often don't realise that to children it might not be at all obvious <laughs> how what I'm doing today links to what we did last week. So making that really explicit, activate that prior learning, we develop their metacognitive skills as learners that they get that part of learning is bridging that link between different things. It's so simple, but it's great. Mm. So that's our number five. So number six, Steve, and it's Mary Myatt's favourite, is talk. She talks in the podcast about scaffolding primarily through talk. We think it's one of many awesome ways to scaffold. And it's such a hard one to summarise in a nutshell because we do it all the time. It kind of doesn't look 
a one particular way, does it? No. But it can help children to generate ideas, clarify their thinking, get those cogs whirring. And perhaps, Steve, when we're having conversations in the class, making helpful little notes and annotations or images as we talk. And do you know what? As I'm saying that, it reminds me of observing you years ago and how well you used to use your TA, didn't you? I can remember you'd be in a, an English lesson or something and you'd say, oh, Mr. Cummings, whack that picture up or there or write a note of that. That's a great idea. And as you'd be teaching, you'd be getting him to he'd be capturing the talk that was going on in the room, wouldn't he? And you use that. That was like your go-to way of one, using your TA well in the lesson, but two, actually getting all the ideas that were bouncing around the room captured somewhere for the children to use later on. Yeah, and the one way I always looked here was that, okay, my job was to be the teacher and the facilitator there with my support staff, but every child in that room was a teacher as well. So they might say something that I've not even contemplated, so that's worth getting on a board somewhere to capture it because a child can benefit from that. And we even developed the idea of having scrapbooks. And because sometimes children can be, I know from the ADHD, some, some children doodle and look like they're off task, but they are really valuing what other people are saying and the talk that's going on. Yeah, uh, And that, that's just doodle time. So we thought let's introduce scrapbooks for, for our higher key stage two children. And the you're so right the, the helpful notes and images that children was writing down when you spoke to the child they could really recall the talk that happened within a lesson or a series of lessons right. from having that simple note or image and talk is such a powerful tool and sure too much talk in a lesson can really slow it down but people shouldn't be afraid and peer talk is amazing mm. and children rephrasing perhaps what's been said by an adult in a classroom can really capture the essence of a discussion and there's no more powerful tool than talk in generating the ideas like you said and actually <sighs> resolving misconceptions can be mm. brilliant from a child I, I used to love having a child come up to the front to be the teacher because their explanations are so succinct sometimes that you think I could have waffled for two or three minutes, but they've captured it in 30 seconds and children are going, ah, the light bulb moment. Yeah, I know what's going on. Of course. And it's about using the right kind of talk for the right situation. Mm. So what you've described there with using the children more and stuff, I might do that more and more later in the unit yeah. once i've got a lot of that knowledge content going in their heads right at the start of a unit or at the start of a lesson where i'm introducing a new concept i'm going to be really driving that talk myself of course i'm going to be including them and checking for understanding and interacting mm -hmm. but i'm going to be really leading that but what you're talking about there is where perhaps we've got to a stage where we've got more ideas going on in the room that are really valuable and i can bring those in absolutely makes sense to capture more of the children's talk and a simple thing with our key stage one children we use a lot and i know are used in lots of other schools are like we call them talking tins or sound buttons yes. which are always a pain in terms of batteries i just <laughs> bought a bunch of amazon and sat with a tiny screwdriver at school and fixed about 20 of them because they need three of those little watch batteries each <laughs> Uh, but I'm, I'm popular now with my Key Stage 1 colleagues for doing it. But they're such a useful way for children that find it hard to store things in their working memory and can't hold on to very much information. So they're building a sentence. Imagine you're six years old. You're still developing your motor skills to write a sentence well. You've got to think about your capital letters and full stops that your teacher keeps reminding you about. You've got to do finger spaces, which your teacher keeps reminding you about. You're still at an early stage of phonics. You're trying to remember all your key sounds. And all of these things are going on in your head. And you're going to be thinking of your ideas. 
Well, a talking tin or a sound button is great, isn't it? Because that child can orally rehearse that sentence, maybe with an adult, maybe over time or on their own, capture that, uh, play that back to themselves as they're writing. And it's really interesting because me and a colleague were looking at this last year as part of their incremental coaching. And we were saying that we have to train the children to start to use that resource more independently. It's not a scaffold if I have to talk into their talking tin all year for them and that I have to press the button and I have to remind them to check back uh, you know, with the sound button that they've written everything that was said. What I want to do is wean them on to being the person that uses it as an independent learning tool, that they practice and say their sentence on it, that they check that they've included every word by reading back and putting their finger on each word. So it's another example, Steve, where talk's valuable we can train the children to become more independent we're using that scaffold i love that example it's such a true model of incremental coaching i really like the idea of how we can develop the children to be a bit more independent okay so that's talk another cracker we're almost at our eight we've got two more to go so number seven actually i mentioned this right at the start steve when we're talking about breaking our lesson into small chunks and i think this one comes hand in hand and it's check for understanding and my goodness this is the thing i'm finding myself talking to our newer teachers about more and more or one of my colleagues is an ECT I'm coaching. We're talking about this today, that a really important part of explicit instruction in, in my teaching is that I make time to check for understanding that I gauge the temperature of the room and see whether what I think is going in is going in. And I would admit, Steve, I was the classic teacher. I thought if I smash my input, if I describe things really well, <laughs> I felt that was a strength. I could explain concepts. I could use the right visuals, that it must be landing. And if it wasn't, it's their problem, <laughs> you know, and then yeah. I'd just like you described earlier, I'd be sat with a big pile of books at six o'clock that night and feel demoralized that a whole group hadn't got it. And it was because I hadn't made the time in the lesson to gauge the temperature of the room. You know, that can be painful, Steve, because I can do that and realize I'm not nailing my teaching or someone hasn't been listening properly. And it actually sometimes as a teacher we can shy away from revealing that because we don't want to know we don't want to know that it's not going in so we just deliver 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 and we talk at them and then we wonder later on why it's not landing because we've not bothered to check steve so uh, i think check for understanding is a really important part of scaffolding don't you it is and i think you nailed it there when you said you could be nailing your teacher mm. but the child might not be listening <laughs> so the check for understanding is a two-way process it's yeah. like checking a that we're delivering it with clarity yeah and we're checking along the way to address any misconceptions that might come up or, or just to be more succinct with the points we're making but the other point is that children can be really good at looking at like listening but not i love that so therefore we need to check that they are listening we can't take it as a guarantee that they're sitting there. And some children develop a brilliant habit of nodding at the right time. Oh, they do. They are. That silent majority of the class are brilliant. When I moved to your school, Steve, I always tell people about this honestly. I took on a lovely class that you had had, hadn't you, the year before? Dreamy class. In year three, yeah. And they were the kind of class they weren't going to kick off or misbehave if if your teaching wasn't as good as it could be. They would. They were generally polite, sweet, lovely bunch of kids. But I just moved from a school where your lesson is anything but awesome and someone's kicking off within no time like that's where it was you know there wasn't good behavior systems in the school so it was all about you know how well I was doing engaging them and asking them good questions and teaching them well so suddenly I came to to your place and it took me the year to realize oh a few bits of my teaching have slipped back here because I'm getting away with things that my old kids wouldn't have let me get away with and not intentionally not consciously I was working my socks off 
but maybe I wasn't checking for understanding. I was assuming they were just getting it and they would just smile and nod. That's so dangerous in teaching. And so sometimes those most lovely classes, be wary if you've got one of those really compliant, polite classes. <laughs> They're the ones that you need to check for understanding even more with. The kids that are kicking off, they're giving you the sign that they're not getting it. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm not saying it's okay that they're kicking off. All right. That's not okay. But it's often a symptom of not just boredom, but actually I don't get this and, and I'm frustrated mm -hmm. and therefore I'm going to act out because I'm failing. Uh, whereas a polite class won't do that. And, you know, learning is happening cognitively. We can't see it. So we have to find ways of illuminating what's going on in their thinking so whether that be them answering a question talking to their partner having a go at a specific question early on so those mini chunks we talked about earlier give us so many opportunities to do that don't they because we can go back and forth check for understanding as we go and you made a great point earlier about it's a two-way street and kids sometimes just drift off I was the daydreaming kid at school. I wasn't rude. I wasn't impolite. But my teacher would talk for a, a whole bunch of time. And there's nothing wrong with talking for a while if you're being interesting and you're explaining things well. But I'd just drift. And I don't think that was his fault. It was just me. And then suddenly you go, now off you go. And I'd panic. And I think, I haven't got a clue what I'm going to be doing. I have to ask someone. You don't want to ask someone. Yeah, exactly. And then I wouldn't ask anyone and I might copy or I might blag it or get it wrong. So I needed check for understanding from my teacher to keep me on, on the ball. And even now I'm better like that if I'm on a course or a conference and I need the speaker to kind of do that, not to me specifically necessarily, but give us those little chances to talk or reflect on what we've heard so far so that I can kind of wake back up and make sure I'm focused. Absolutely. Yeah, you've, you've really hit the nail on the head, honestly. Okay, so number eight, Steve, last but not least, and I hope these have all been useful, is the use of any resources or visuals to aid understanding. This, I mean, this is such a broad one. I can think about, obviously, as math specialists, I talk a lot about uh, you know the right manipulative or the right visual and one thing I'll say straight away, Steve, and then I'll throw this one back to you um, to think about in another context, but is in maths it's so tempting and i see this sometimes online people say oh look at my maths working wall and it looks like the maths mastery monster has been sick on the wall with everything it's ever swallowed and there's 50 10 frames a part whole model an array <laughs> some cubes and and do you know what i mean it's got everything where i would always say use a bit of restraint with your visuals and your manipulatives in maths and be open to the idea that the scheme you might use or you might follow might get it wrong sometimes or it might not be the right resource for, for your children so really think about what is the right visual in this lesson that's going to make that is going to illuminate that mathematical concept so if you take something like multiplication there's no no visual better than a, an array for getting the commutative law for getting that idea of multiplication division being inverses for that idea of equal groups nothing nothing's better than an array so I would always say to people, yeah, you can also have some bar models probably within multiplication division. They're really useful as well. Equal parts. But you don't need another 50 different visuals within that unit because there are lots of other ways I can show you multiplication. What is the most useful visual that's going to illuminate that idea for children and make them go, oh, and we've all had that in maths where we've, we've used the right visual, mm -hmm. we've used the right manipulative and it's like, ah they can just see it they really get it and then like all scaffolds i can remove that over time once they've got an internal visual memory of what that that concept really means i think that's hard for teachers sometimes because a lot of us weren't taught like that we were taught just in the abstract and we don't get that actually 
we want children to visualize things like 100 squares in their head. We need them to picture that mentally and have a mental model for that. So I just wanted a little rant about maths, Steve. I'm going to shut up now and let you talk about something else. Where else do you use visuals or concrete apparatus? Well, I can rant about my own classroom and English because uh, it takes me back. The, the phrase that took me back there, Russell, was that it was like someone had been sick over the wall. And you know what? Uh, I remember my little girl had just been born and I was just going back into year six. And I was like, I'm going to have a retro gaming classroom. I don't know why and the thing didn't really matter but I was looking at the English curriculum I was going to deliver at the beginning of the year and I was like oh Mario I can have Mario spag Etty spaghetti Mario spaghetti so I literally chucked up and I don't know why because at this point in my career I was fairly experienced the baby had been born I think lost my way exactly so I put up a whole heap of um punctuation every type different type of punctuation every different type of um, spelling that was coming up in the year five and six curriculum it was bombarded it, it was like someone had walked along the road and just been sick over my windows with spag um, <laughs> and it made no sense at all and it took me because I, I went into school and then I had um, paternity leave a few weeks later and I remember the first few writing tasks I'm thinking, I don't know, I don't get why this is not a low achieving year six class. This is all right. We're going to get some decent results. But their writing's not cutting it. And I'm thinking, it's all up on the wall, though. So, so where are they not getting this from? And then it took me, just before I went on paternity, to stand back and look at that wall in the eyes of one of my class and think, what is actually helping me up there? Because there's far too much it's like cognitive overload mm. and it was disgusting it was just <laughs> too much everywhere <laughs> so i had to really pull it back and strip it back and think hold on i'm not doing every genre at once i'm certainly not doing every spelling in the year five six tricky words list for example yeah so i had to really pull it all back and think right how am i going to make a displaying class really benefit my children and i knew i just wasn't thinking properly about it and by the time you strip it back and you think of how you can use icons to develop a story map mm. or a text map. And for me, the one and only Pi Corbett does that brilliantly. Yeah. And you can really see where children are sometimes uncomfortable with developing their own story using a famous one. Um, I'm thinking like Theseus and the Minotaur. Nice. Something like that, where they can really have icons that are, stepping stones like we're saying step-by-step instructions and stepping stones for a lesson yeah you have that through the story and then from there you can develop adverbial openers and prepositional phrases etc to build in but the main point of the visuals is to really structure that piece that they're doing and some children are so au fait with story maps and text maps that three years later if you put it up in a classroom They'll be able to retell you that story because it's it's ingrained within them. They they've really understood the point of it and they've really understood it. And then, like I said, with English in particular, think about the certain vocabulary that you want. Think about the modelled examples of uh, punctuation composition that you want, and don't just put it all up there at the front of a classroom or in a window and think it's there. They need to go to it. Yeah. No, that's not how the visuals work. You bring the visuals to the children because you make sure they are useful and they're on task. Because if they're not, that bombardment in their brain of uh, graphics and images would just be far too much and they can't connect the ideas. 
Nice. Uh, My favourite bit of your reflection there was when you said, I stepped back and looked at it about your spaghetti display. (laughs) And, you know, that's so important that you can be reflective like that as a teacher. And I'm so pleased you admitted that, you know, years into your career, you were still making those mistakes sometimes and going, hang on, is that really helpful? And we could all do with that dose of honesty with ourselves sometimes to just go, is this working? Have I overdone it? So great Mm. message there about the use of visuals and, you know, similar to what we were talking about with the maths. And you talked about story mapping. I'd never thought to use story mapping with icons in other subjects until I did in history. I was covering uh, year two last year each week for history. And we were learning about the Great Fire of London, of course, because it's year two. (laughs) And uh, we story mapped the main events and are so powerful just to narrate that story map and then have children narrate that back to me and there's something about pictorial cues isn't there that has children really talk and it's so better than me putting lots of text on the board for them to use as a stimulus so relating that to those uh, icons or those images can be really good we actually had a staff meeting last night about retrieval and we were saying that if you've used icons or images in your lesson great to use those as retrieval practice later on so i actually did that with these icons so I might have picked two or three of those key icons I'd used in my story map about the events of Great Fire of London. So one of them was this window with this orange glow in the background, where it's the orange glow that Samuel Peep sees in the distance of this fire when he gets up that morning. So I'd put that up and just go, so what's that got to do with the Great Fire of London? Oh, Samuel Peep's got up in the morning and he looked out of his window and he saw the the warm glow of the, the fire in the distance. Well, that image meant something to those children and generated or kind of uh, cued in all that knowledge that they they had so great for retrieval as well well look eight scaffolding techniques to enhance your teaching as steve said at the start i bet they're all things you do already but i hope we've given you some clarity about how to make those eight things work how some of them combine the different elements and how hopefully lots of those things are actually really simple for your workload and easy to inject into your everyday teaching steve yeah and i really do hope they're beneficial because I can still reflect on think They're just little tweaks into my practice that would just tighten it even a bit further to give the best shot to every child. And I always think every child only has that one lesson a week to develop and they have that one week within the, the term and they have that one term, they have that one year. So you get one shot every time. And therefore, if we can just make everything a little bit tighter, it'll give our work a little bit easier, we'll be fine. Awesome. And if you've enjoyed listening to our reflections about effective teaching techniques, you might enjoy the book that's coming out in April. It is on pre-order now, as I said earlier, Talking Teaching with the Dynamic Deputies, Inspiring CPD for Every Teacher. Get a pre-order in and you will learn loads more about different techniques that we've been inspired by or different approaches to teaching, different philosophies and ideas about teaching from some of the amazing guests we've been privileged to talk to over the last couple of years. Keep logging on to the podcast. We've got loads of cracking guests coming soon. Keep telling your friends and your colleagues about us and uh, let us know what you thought of this episode. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. The Dynamic Deputy.